0: Thank you, Lord. Well, God is good, Amen. I want to read a scripture to you from uh, from the book of uh, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter four, verse six, and we'll come back to this a little later. It says, so he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is the word of the Lord. That was the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, but that is the word of the Lord for us also. Anything we do, we're not going to do it by might. We're not going to do it by power. It's going to be by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen? And we've been talking a lot about the cross and about the church, about biblical community. And I use that phrase, biblical community. And that is, you can use biblical community or you can use church. They're one and the same. The church is the biblical community. The word church just brings up these connotations of buildings and cathedrals and institutions, and, you know, it's all about the the outside and the material, but that's not really what the church is. The church isn't about those things. The church is about people. The word church literally means a called-out assembly. A called-out assembly. We are the called-out ones. Called out by who? Called out by Jesus Christ. Called out of what? Called out of death and called into light, called out of darkness, and called into light, into life. And the scripture says that that doesn't happen by our might, or by our power, or by our hard working. It happens by the Spirit. Amen? And so we've talked a lot about the cross, the cross leads directly to the church removing all things that are contrary to it and making way for the living expression of the life of Christ. The church is the living expression of Jesus in the earth. That living expression is able to come forth because of the work of the cross. Apart from the cross, remember, there can be no church. There is no church without the cross. And so the cross is not... A historical event. The cross is a present truth and a present reality. The crucifixion of Jesus is a historical event. It is an event that happened at a point in time in our history. Jesus was crucified. He was only crucified once. But the cross is a present reality. It is an eternal truth. And it is a working that takes place in us continuously. Amen? And the cross is not just the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross is His death. It is His burial. And it is His resurrection. So when we say the cross. We mean all that it encompasses. In His death and in His resurrection. And in the life that we now have as a result of that. So the cross makes way for a new life and a new nature. Now I'm I'm reviewing here. Because I want, I want us to go somewhere and we're going to talk about the corporate expression of the body of Christ today and why that is so important. Remember, the cross removes those things that are contrary to what? Contrary to everything Christ is. Contrary to the church that is the living expression and the meaning of what, what the cross was all about. And so the cross makes a way for a new life and a new nature. It removes one life and one nature, that is the nature of Adam, remember the flesh. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So unless the flesh is taken out of the way, unless the flesh is removed, there cannot be a birth by the spirit, amen? And the cross removes that old nature of Adam, and it replaces it with a new nature and a new life that is Christ, amen? And so the new life and the new nature, how do we receive that? That is received by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. So how do I receive the new life and the new nature of Christ? By faith. That's how you do it. It's through faith that it's received. The cross makes a way for one body and one life. And this is important. The cross removes the barriers and the hindrances to the spiritual and functional Relatedness. Do you know that we are related? Amen? You realize that, right? We are related because we have the same Father. Some of you go, no we don't. Well, if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, we have the same Father, God the Father. We have the same DNA, not a physical DNA, not a natural DNA, but a spiritual DNA. We have, if you will, the DNA of Christ. And we have been brought into and made the family of God. We are related in Christ. And there is a spiritual relationship, a spiritual relatedness, a spiritual functioning. There's got to be this functional relatedness that comes through being one body and one life. And the cross makes relationship and unity functional in Christ. Because when myself, Wants to rise up and take control. What is the instrument that God has used to remove the self, to remove the I? I want, well, there's the I, right? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We're doing this Bible study on Sunday evening. It's called Not I but Christ. Some of you have already gone through it. Kathy taught it on Sunday morning. And it's something that we're going to offer this on a regular basis. And it's something that I would encourage all of you to go through. So the cross is the instrument that removes the I. It removes the me. Because it's not about me. And it's not about you. It is about Him. Amen? There is now one body and one life. Whose body and whose life is it now? If it's not mine, if it's not yours, whose is it? It's Christ. Ephesians talks about how the two have been made one. The wall of separation has been done away with and God has now joined the two to become one and He has made in Christ one new man. And there is one man that can appear in the presence of the Father. There is one man that is acceptable to the Father. That is the man, Christ Jesus. And how do we become acceptable to the Father? Because we come in Him, not in our own identity, remember, but in whose identity? In His identity. I am known by the Father through the Son. We are related in the Son. We are acceptable in the Son. And so now there is one body, one life. How does the cross do that? Remember, it removes the things that are contrary. It deals with those things that oppose that life of Christ, that oneness of Christ. And what does the work of the cross, how does it become a reality in us, is a question a lot of people ask. And here is, here is the truth. You've got to catch this. It is a reality. It's not something that becomes a reality in you. It's something that is a reality in you through faith in Christ. When you are born again, when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, that becomes your reality. You are of one body, you have one life. It is the life of Christ. And it's not something you're trying to make a reality, it is a reality. What you and I have to do is continually renew our mind to that reality. Amen? We are to renew our mind to that reality in Christ and no longer allow our mind and our attitude to be conformed to the carnal or temporary or corrupt nature of this world. But we renew our mind to the incorrupt nature, the eternal reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen? So this brings me to this last point that I want to talk about. The cross makes a way for a corporate work to be done. And we sing songs and we we sing a lot of times to the Lord and, and I'm singing to the Lord and I'm telling how much the Lord loves me and I'm thanking the Lord for how much He loves me and that's good. God loves you and you should love the Lord. But I want you to understand a very, very important truth. True accomplishment in the church will never be realized alone. We are created in Christ to function together in Him by His Spirit corporately. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. There cannot be. If you are, you're living under an illusion, a deception. The work that God is doing in the earth is a corporate work. Amen? It's a corporate work. Now let's look, at, let's look at some images that God gives us in His Word. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. The body, listen church, the body is corporate. The body is corporate. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave, free, we have all been made to drink into or of one Spirit. The body is... Is corporate. Go to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two verse five. Peter says, You also as living stones are being built up. You are being built up a spiritual house. You as living stones. That word stones is plural. But the word house is singular. Many stones building, how many houses? One house. You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The house, the house is corporate. Now let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 verse 9. Revelation 21.9, it says, Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. The Bible Uses word pictures and describes us as a body. It describes us as a house, as a temple. It describes us as a city. The city is corporate. Ephesians 5, 30-32, Paul ends this discourse in talking about husbands and wives in marriage. And he quotes from Genesis and he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. They shall be joined together. And Paul says, but I speak a mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. and We see that the picture, the very picture of marriage on earth in the natural is the picture of our relationship, the relationship of the bride and the bridegroom. The bride is corporate. The city is corporate. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. 22, the writer of Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. The church is corporate. The work that God is doing in the earth is a corporate work. The life that God calls us to is a corporate life. The faith that He calls us to, though it is very personal, though I have a personal relationship with Jesus, it is a corporate faith. Amen? It's a corporate work by His Spirit through the church. Now let's go back to the Old Testament. I wanted to lay a ground. Work for this truth that what God is doing, and what God has eternally purposed, is a corporate work. Now, let's go to Ezra. Let's begin in Ezra. And we're going to look at, very briefly, I'm going to go through this really quick. I would really encourage you, Ezra is right after Second Chronicles. Ezra chapter 4 you know when you read the scripture read the scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ to you the scripture is about revealing Christ Jesus said it in Luke, in the Luke's gospel, at the end of Luke's gospel, when when the disciples were in doubt and unbelief, and they didn't believe Jesus was coming back, and they thought he'd been crucified, and he was dead and and gone. And and the scripture says, even though Jesus was there in their midst, and they're touching the, the wounds in his body, and they're handling him physically, it says, yet though they were joyful, they did not believe, even though they were touching him. So don't tell me if I could see, I would believe. If Jesus would just appear to me, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. I'll tell you exactly what Jesus said. If you're not going to believe the scripture, though one come back from the dead, you're not going to believe it. If Jesus descended personally and stood right before you, person to person, if you don't believe this word right here, you're not going to believe some physical manifestation of Jesus. How do you know that, pastor? Because no one in history has ever done that. No one in history has ever come to faith believing apart from this word right here. So I'm telling you, this word, this word is how God will reveal himself to you. I'm not saying God can't give you a dream or a vision. I believe in dreams and visions. I believe in the supernatural manifestation and the works of the Spirit. I believe in all that. But I'm telling you what, God will never do anything to circumvent Or to bypass his word. Anything he does apart from this word. Will confirm this word. And there's a reason why Paul told his spiritual son Timothy. To study to show yourself approved. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Jesus said my words are spirit. And they are life. The difference between us. And those who studied the word before Jesus went to the cross, before he was resurrected and ascended and poured out his spirit, the difference now is if you are in Christ, you have the spirit of God living in you. You have the teacher living in you who will reveal truth to you, who will bring to your remembrance the things that Christ has said, who will illuminate this word for you. We've been given the greatest tool, if I can use that word. The Holy Spirit's not a tool. He's a person. And He lives in you. But if we don't take time to get into this word, not in a legalistic way, I'm telling you what, we should find joy in allowing the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to us through this written word. Amen? The work that God is doing in the earth is a corporate work. Have you found Ezra? Ezra chapter 4. Alright, let me just, instead of reading there's a lot of scripture here. Let me just tell you what's happening here. Israel has been in captivity for 70 years. They've been in Babylon. Babylon got overthrown. Darius came in. Remember Nebuchadnezzar was having a big party. They were all in a drunken stupor thinking they had they were invincible. And The Medo Persians come in and they conquer the city. And Israel is in captivity, and at the end of the 70 years, the decree is made and they're sent back to rebuild Jerusalem. And that decree was made, and they go back and they work for four years. And at the end of four years, they stop working. And here in Ezra 4, it brings us up to the point to, when, to where they stopped their work. And now look at verse 1. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Asharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel said, no way. No way am I going to let you come in and work on the temple of God. And there was a reason why Zerubbabel wouldn't. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But Zerubbabel would not allow these unbelievers. Though they said they believed, they were not believers. Though they said their motives were pure, their motives were not pure. They had ulterior motives. And it wasn't to do the work of God. It was actually to stop the work of God. They just were going to try to come in the back door. Well, that didn't work. And Zerubbabel would not allow them to participate. So they couldn't stop the work through covert means. They said, well, we'll just come at you straight on. And they begin to make false accusations, do all kinds of things. The bottom line is this. Great opposition came. Against the work of God. Now let's fast forward. Look at, look at, uh, look at uh, verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate. You see that word frustrate there? To frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now go to the end of that chapter to verse 24. The rest of that chapter records a letter that was written to the king of Persia. And they finally got their way. Verse 24 says, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I'm sorry, it was Cyrus who issued the decree. And then 14 years later, Darius is now king. So at the end of Ezra 4, verse 24 there were four years of work, and then the work stopped, and there is a 14-year gap. And when Darius becomes king, look at verse, look at chapter 5, verse 1, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And they prophesied and they began, the Spirit of God began to stir up the people of God. Amen? So, here God issues the decree. He sends them to go and begin rebuilding the temple. They work for four years. They come against such opposition, they become so frustrated, they stop the work. And for 14 years, they are in the land there, but they are doing no work. Now, go over a few books to Haggai. It's right before Zechariah. Right after Zephaniah. Getting close to the end of your Old Testament there. Haggai chapter 1. Now Cyrus issued the decree 18 years previous. Here we go. Haggai chapter 1. Verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So here comes the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So, after 14 years of no work, now do you see what's happened here? The people of God, the children of Israel, took it upon themselves to make the decision that it was time to stop working. And they got as far as as laying the foundation of the temple. They had the temple foundation laid, but that was all of the temple that was built was just a foundation. So for 14 years, a foundation is lying there with no temple being built on it. And this was the reasoning of the people. The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Why? Because we faced such opposition. Because we were so frustrated. Because it seemed like nothing was working out, it must be that it's not time. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just going to tell you straight up, I've used that logic a lot. Have you? Am I the only one? Now, I'm not saying that might not be the case, but I want you to realize the word of the Lord was given, and God never took his word back. He never said, cease and desist. They stopped. And so here comes the prophet of God. And God says, Here's the thing, prophet. The people are saying the time has not come that the house, the Lord's house, should be built. They've turned to other things, and they need to consider their ways. Now look at verse 6. Here's what the Lord says You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's the second time he's told them to consider their ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little, When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Do you see that the people of God were pursuing their own ends, their own desires, their own pleasures. Is God a killjoy? No, he's not. Is God against you building houses? No, he's not. Don't read into something that's being said here that's not being said here. But hear what God is saying. God commissioned those people to go do a work. And those people took it upon themselves to stop doing the work of God. And they begin to pursue their own work and their own ends. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. Because when God says something's gonna happen, you know what? It's gonna happen. When God says the temple's gonna get rebuilt, the temple's gonna get rebuilt. And so God begins to tell them the reason you're so frustrated, the reason nothing seems to be working, is I ain't letting it work. Here, now. Before, it was your enemies that was frustrating you. And you took it upon yourself to stop because you were frustrated by your enemy. In the scheme of the enemy work, the the enemy got you to doubt me. The enemy got you to not trust in the word of the Lord. The enemy is always attempting to defeat the work of God through frustration. Because in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of the children of Israel's frustration, you know what they did? They stopped working. They decided that it wasn't time for the Lord's house to be built. They took the word of the Lord and they set it aside and they came to the conclusion that their own word is what the truth was. See, that wasn't the Lord's word, that was their own word. And they believed a lie instead of believing the truth. And that was exactly what the enemies of God wanted to have happen. The enemy didn't care how it happened, he just wanted them to not believe the word of God. In the beginning, there is Eve in the garden, and God has given Adam and Eve a word. Don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other tree you can eat from, but the moment you eat from that tree, you will die. Here comes the enemy of God, the adversary, and he comes and he says, you know, Didn't God say you could eat from any tree? You know you're really not going to die. God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. And you know what? They believed not the word of the Lord. They believed the lie instead. And the enemy is always attempting to defeat the work of God through frustration. What is the work of God? Well, for the children of Israel, it was to build this temple. But I, I'm telling you the work of God was greater than just building a temple. Jesus tells us what the work of God is in, in, in John 6:29. Let, let me read it to you. He said, "Well, Pastor Jeff, what is the work of God for me today?" You know, people asked Jesus that very same thing. They said to him, "What shall we do that we may work the works of God?" They said, "We want to do miracles like you, do Jesus? We don't be able to do the things that you do. And here's what Jesus responded to them. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. This is the work of God that you believe in the Son of God. Now let me me say it again. The enemy is always attempting to defeat the work of God. The enemy is always attempting to defeat your faith. The enemy is always attempting to defeat your trust, your belief in the Son of God. He always is. However, he can do it, he will do it. And if you allow his work to get a hold in you, you'll end up just like the children of Israel. You will sit idle for 14 years. Now, they weren't idle. In terms, in, as far as God is concerned, they might as well have been idle. They might as well not been doing anything. It's not that they were idle; they were doing a lot of things, evidently. But they weren't doing what God told them to do. You know, the church is doing a lot of things. I mean, the the church, worldwide, the church, nationwide, the church—what we call the church—we're doing a lot of things. It's not that we're idle, but the question is: Are we doing? the work of God. Now that's the question. Well, I'm building a house, God. Yeah, but is it the house that I told you to build? I'm building a work, God. I'm doing this great work over here. Yeah, but is it the work that I told you to do? Is it the work that is building up and glorifying my son? Is it the work that is bringing men to know and to believe and to trust in my son now here's what happened the enemy's always trying to frustrate our faith he's always trying to frustrate our belief and our our trusting in the son of God and this frustration comes in a lot of ways now if you I don't have time to read but you've got the scriptures there and I want you to go and I want you to read just read those books read what happened in Ezra read what happened in Haggai Haggai's a real real short book But you'll see what happened here. They come and and the enemies of God come and they say, hey, we want to join with you guys. And their thought was this, if we can mix in with them, we'll we'll get them, we'll, we'll, we'll overthrow this thing, we'll take control of this thing. And a lot of times frustration comes through mixture, mixed purpose, mixed motives, mixed beliefs, mixed alliance, mixed... Mixing the truth with what is false. James says, ask wisdom from God, but ask believing, because if you doubt, you are double-minded. There's a mixture right there. And that mixture of doubt and unbelief will drive you crazy and frustrate you. It will. So frustration comes through mixture. It also comes through misrepresentation. What's that? False reports, false beliefs, false threats, false words, false attitudes or mindsets. They did that to the children of Israel. Does the enemy do that to us? Oh yeah, he does. Now, speaking of frustration, remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and God gave the law to Moses and to the children of Israel? And God set a standard through the law that was so high, that was so unattainable, it was humanly impossible to live up to that. Is that frustrating? Yeah. Now, if you're, if you're under the false illusion that you can somehow do all of those things and become righteous by doing them, which is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a lot of people thought they could do, They were content to live under that system and it became, for them, a point of pride and arrogance that they were able to be so righteous, but most of you people just don't measure up. And you see two classes of people and it's demonstrated very succinctly, very clearly in this story that Jesus told about about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple. And on one hand, the Pharisee is standing there in his robes and in his self-righteousness and he looks over at the tax collector who's beating his breast and the tax collector's crying out, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner like me. Have mercy on me, God. I'm so unworthy. And the Pharisee looks over at that tax collector and he says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this man here. Now that is... See, the law will bring you to one of those two places and it was meant to bring us to the place of the tax collector who was so frustrated that he could not live up to God's standard he was crying out for God's grace and for God's mercy and in that sense this is exactly what we see God doing in Haggai so here are the children of Israel they cease the work of God they go and begin to do their own work because they've come to this conclusion through self-justification, that we don't have to do the work of God because it's not time for the work of God. And so what does God do? God frustrates them. The enemy frustrates them. See, if you're going to let the frustration of the enemy get to you, then I'm going to frustrate you. And after 14 years of frustration, the word of the Lord comes. And here's what happens. God says, I called for all these things. Nothing worked out for you guys. Then Zerubbabel, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. You see, there was no fear of God before this. Here comes the word of the Lord. And the Spirit of God and the moving of the Spirit brought the people back to a realization. I mean, they had a revelation. And it says, and the fear of the presence of the Lord was there. Now, God doesn't want you and I to to be fearful of Him like He's some, you know, abusive father in heaven who's going to beat us if we don't do just right. That's some people's image of God. And that is the image that the enemy wants you to have. The fear that returned to the people was an understanding, it was a revelation that they had departed from the truth and now they realized the Spirit of God was speaking to them and they realized that God was in their midst, that God himself was speaking and the fear of the presence of the Lord came back. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge and they realized that they had departed from the purposes of God. They had taken their hands away from the work of God and began to do the works of the flesh, their own works, their own things. And God was calling them back to the truth. And so then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, look at verse 13, spoke this message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. See, God didn't frustrate them because he wanted to punish them. God didn't do those things because he was trying to punish them. God was trying to bring them back to the point at which they departed from his path. Because there was a work that needed to be done. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, in his love, he brought them back to the place and he spoke to them and he says, Guys, I am with you. Why did he say that? Because God was with them even when... Their enemies were opposing them. Do you think 14 years earlier when all the threats and all the things that were being made against the children of Israel, had they had the revelation, the surety and the confidence that God was with them, do you think they'd ever been afraid of those enemies and those adversaries? No, they would not have. But because they did not believe that God was with them, They departed from the work of God. And God is just simply bringing them back. And he's saying, guys, I am with you. And I'm telling you what, church. God is saying to us today, I am with you. He has made a deposit in us. His spirit. It is the deposit. It is the down payment. It is the surety that we are the children of God. It is the surety that we are sealed, that we are saved. That we have been given life in the Son, Christ Jesus. And God has purpose to use you and I, not individually, but corporately, to do a work in the earth. The frustration and the opposition that we experience will not be overcome individually. Have you ever tried to fight a battle by yourself? you ever tried to deal with things by yourself? You know God will let you do it. But I'm going to tell you what, you will become more and more and more and more frustrated. And that frustration can go one of two ways. It can be a point of temptation for you to say, forget it, God. I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. Or it can become a point in which you stop living in your own strength, stop trying in your own effort, stop trusting in your own salvation, And you come to a place where you just stand before God and say, God, here I am. I am hopeless. I am desperate. I have nothing left. I'm crying out to you in mercy, God. And that's where God wants us to come to. Because when we reach that point, we realize there is nothing more we have to offer. It's not me. It's not my strength. It's not my goodness. It's God. It's His grace. And out of my frustration with myself and my efforts that continually fail, I cry out in faith to God. And that is the moment God will reach down. I mean, He will save you. He will transform you. But the whole time that struggle is going on, that frustration, the enemy is trying to get you to do what? To throw away your trust and your belief in God. And you are never going to overcome that individually. God has called us together corporately. The frustration of the evil one is countered by the Holy Spirit through the corporate body, through the corporate work of the church. That's why the scripture says, don't forsake assembling together. Consider one another to provoke one another, encourage one another, even more as you see the day approaching. We can't let our pride, and we can't let all of those things that, that the enemy loves to, to, to get us secure in, well, I can't, I can't tell my brother that, because then he might think this of me, or he might think I'm weak, or he like we're not. We are weak. <laughs> Got newsflash. We are weak. But the good news is, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. When the children of Israel responded to the Spirit of God and came together as one, guess what? The work was done. In four years, they finished that temple. And in four years, when that temple was finished, they dedicated that temple. But listen, in the book of Haggai here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Haggai chapter 6, I mean, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and verses 7. Haggai prophesies of this temple, this latter temple. And he says, The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. We touched briefly last night about the day Jesus, that little baby, was carried into the temple to be dedicated after Mary's purification. And here's this little infant carried in by this poor Jewish couple. Who looked like all the hundreds of other Jewish couples that were carrying their babies in there. Who looked like all the other Jewish people walking around and all the other Jewish babies walking around. There was nothing about Jesus. He didn't have a glowing halo around his head. He didn't have little cherubim flying around him signifying he was the son of God. I promise you he looked just like every other baby of his day. But there were two people in that temple, an old man and an old woman, and the Bible says they were at the end of their days, and daily they went to that temple. You know why they went there? Because they had a promise from God, because they heard a word from God, and the word of God to this old man and this old woman, who were two different people, they weren't married, one was, a, they, they were both widowers, but every day they went to that temple. Because God said, before you die, you will see the Messiah. You will see the Messiah come into this temple. And I believe that old man and that old woman, they understood the prophecy of Haggai. You can read the Old Testament scriptures and it says that that the old men and the old women of Israel wept when they saw the new temple. Because it was so less glorious than Solomon's temple. And they wept because it couldn't compare. Yet the word of the Lord was, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. You see, it wasn't the architecture that made it glorious. It wasn't how tall it was. It wasn't what kind of materials they used. It wasn't about smoke. It wasn't about fire. It wasn't about uh, lights glowing and supernatural manifestations. You know what made this temple glorious? Because one day, just about a month after a little baby was born, he was brought to Jerusalem, brought into the temple to be dedicated. And that little baby happened to be the Son of God. And when Solomon dedicated his temple, a cloud came in and all the people fell down. And we got people in the church today praying for clouds to come into our building so we can all fall down. I mean, the, the, the fire of God fell. We got people praying for the fire of God to manifest in our buildings so we can say, "Woo! look, what God has done. I'm going to tell you, that day in Jerusalem, there were only two people other than Mary and Joseph that knew who that baby was. And they didn't know it become some... Man told them they didn't know it because they read it in a book from the Christian bookstore. They didn't get it from a seminar or a conference they went to. They knew it because they had a word from the Lord. And day in and day out, as old as they were, they made that journey to that temple because they had a promise from God. And they didn't let anything dissuade them, they didn't let anything deter them and they went day in and day out to that temple because God had given them a promise and as old as they were, don't you think they could have said, God, I think I'm going to stay home today it's a hard road up to that temple I've got to climb a lot of steps my shoes are worn out, my feet hurt you know, they didn't have Nikes and Reeboks and New Balance back in those days they didn't have all the padding that we have in our shoes they just had old leather sandals But they went. And one day, God's word came to pass for those two and for the prophet. And the glory of that latter house became greater than the glory of the former because the Son of God, in the form of that little baby, was carried into that temple. And I'm going to tell you what that was just the beginning. That was that temple. That was not the temple God said he would dwell in. God says, where is the house you will build for me, old man? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? I will not dwell in a house made by the hands of man. God says, I'll build my own house, thank you. And I'm going to tell you what, you are the house. God says, you can build all the cities you want, but I'm going to build my own city. You are the city. You can build your body all you want and get it looking really, really sexy. God says, no, I'm going to build a body. And it's not going to compare to anything that's of this earth. You are the body. You are the house. You are the city. You are the church, not individually, but corporately. You're not the church alone. You are the church because you have, through faith in Christ, been brought into a corporate body that is a corporate expression of Jesus Christ. And we are living in the day of the fulfillment of the glory of God, in the presence of God, dwelling among men. And we're still looking for Old Testament clouds, in Old Testament fire, and Old Testament lightning, When we've got the real thing? Honey, the real thing lives in you. The real thing is in this building right now. The presence of God is in this place right now. Because He's in you. If you're born again today, He's in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. The same power that healed the blind man is in you. That healed the lame man is in you. Oh, but pastor, you don't know the opposition I've been facing. I'm so frustrated. Get over it. Now, I'm not being cruel, but I'm telling you what. If you don't somehow get over it, the enemy will work on you and work on you and work on you until he brings you to a place where you will not believe and not trust in the Son of God. I didn't say you'd lose your salvation. I didn't say God was going to punish you but you will miss what God has called you to do. You'll spend 14 years idly working and doing whatever else, but you're not going to be doing what God told you to do because you're in unbelief. And I'm saying, don't let it happen. You don't have to wait for a prophet to come now and speak the word of God to you. God has not just given you his written word. He has put the living word inside of you. He lives in you by the spirit of God. The living word is in you. I believe in prophetic words. And if I ever have one for any of you guys, I'll give it to you. But I'm going to tell you right now. The word God will give you through this book right here. Through this scripture right here. It's okay, I'll give it later. The word God will give you through this right here is better Than any prophetic word I can give you. And any prophetic word I give you. If it doesn't line up with this right here. You better throw it out. Even if you do love me. And even if I am your pastor. And how are you going to know. If the word I'm giving you. Lines up with this. If you don't ever crack this thing open. If you don't ever. Eat the bread of life. David said your word O God. Have I hid in my heart. That I might not sin against you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And if there is ever a day that the church needs her faith to grow, it is today. If there's ever a day that the church needs to be walking in the truth of God's word, it is today. If there's ever a day that there are voices that are out there drawing and distracting us from the truth of God, from the word of God, from the work of God, it is today. But God has given us his spirit. And God has made promises to us. I'm going to close with this. Let's go to Haggai. I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 4. I wish we could spend time and just go through these books. If you read these books and you see the symbolism that God is giving us, the picture God is painting for us of Christ and his church, it's it's absolutely amazing. So Haggai and Zechariah go right together. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied together. They're prophesying to the same people. When you finish reading Haggai, you go right into Zechariah. It's, it's the same time. It, it, he's dealing with the same things. They're, they're still rebuilding the temple here. And you can read, you can start in the first four chapters of Zechariah. You can see God's passion for his house. God's passion for Jerusalem. What does that translate to? That translates to his passion for the church. Because that house, that temple, and that city were just types and shadows of the church and the city and the temple that he would build not by the hands of man, but by his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't say you would build it. He said he would build it. But here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you've been made part of the body of Christ. That means if you're in Christ, as Jesus builds his church, you're building it with him. Just like I can say I built my house, but, but my hands played a very important role in getting that house built. And here in Zechariah chapter 4, and we see the cleansing in, in chapter 3. It's a beautiful picture, the cleansing of Joshua the high priest comes before the Lord in filthy rags. And God says, take those filthy clothes off of him and put clean clothes on him. You you notice who made him clean? You notice who clothed him in clean garments? Joshua didn't do it. God did it. Who saved you? Who made you righteous? You didn't do it. God did it. It's a picture of the grace of God and the righteousness of God being put upon clothing The people of God. And he goes on in chapter 3. And he begins to prophesy about the servant. The branch. Who will be raised up. The stone that's been laid before Joshua. The stone with seven eyes. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And then the angel. Came back and he, he woke up. He woke up Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel had this vision of this menorah with two olive trees on either side. And he didn't understand what it was. And I don't have time to go into the whole thing, but it's a beautiful picture of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what God ultimately would do through Jesus Christ. But here's what I want you to see. I want us to go back to where I began. Verse 6, so we answered and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with great with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, think about this. Here is a foundation laying there, and for 14 years that foundation is laying there. Now God has stirred his people up. And now God is prophesying. He's telling Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, it's not going to be by might It's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by my spirit. You're not going to do this work through your own strength, through your own ability. It's going to be done by my spirit. Church, how is Jesus going to build the church? Are you going to build it? Are we going to build the church? Is it going to be through our might, through our power, through our efforts? We're trying real hard. I mean, there's all kinds of schemes and plans and strategies that you can go spend right now. You could go to the bookstore and spend about $5,000 on books that will tell you all the schemes and all the strategies and all the plans that man has to build the church. But I got news for you. Jesus never said man would build the church. He said, I'll build my church, thank you. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And he says, Rubable, this temple's going to get built, but it's not going to be by Power by might, it's going to be by my spirit. There's a foundation right now, but I'm telling you what, you're going to speak to the mountain, it's going to become a plain, and you're going to put the capstone, you're going to put the crowning end on top of that thing. That's like putting the star or the angel on the Christmas tree. It's the last thing you do. The capstone goes on last. And what was he saying? He said, the work's going to get done, and it's going to get done by my spirit. Church, I'm telling you right now, God has called us to a work. And if we will stop trying in our own might, in our own power, and trust the Spirit of God to do it, it will get done. Because it's no different today than it was then. That was just speaking prophetically in types and shadows of what God would ultimately do in in building His church. And if we're trying to be something for God, if we're trying to gain something in God, if we're trying to get a position in God through our might and through our power, through the works of our flesh, we're not going to do it. If we're trying to entice people and entertain people through, through natural means, it ain't going to happen. If the Spirit of God doesn't touch the hearts of men, if the Spirit of God doesn't transform the, the hearts and the minds of men, then, then none, nothing else matters. And the only way the Spirit of God is ever going to touch and transform is if we speak and preach and live and do the truth. As we allow that life of the Spirit in us to be expressed and manifest through us. Not by might. Not by power. This is the work of God to believe on the Son of God. We are called by God. We are stirred by His Spirit to rise up and to do the work of God. To believe on the Son of God. The Father sent. And to lead others into that same believing. Do you know the harvest is white? Fields are ripe and they are ready. And God has called us to believe on His Son and to bring others, to lead others to that place of believing. To join this work should never be seen as a burden. It's not a sacrifice you have to make. It should never be, I got to choose the work of God over what I want to do. We should find joy. People, we should find joy. In doing the work of God. We should find joy, listen, to be joined with the Son in bringing glory to the Father. As the house of God, the church is being built. Not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. We should find our joy in joining in the Son. As the Son builds the house to bring glory to His Father. That should be our highest and our greatest joy, to bring glory to the Father. People say, Well, Pastor Jeff, if we're saved by grace and we can't lose our salvation, what's my motivation to not go out and live a sinful life? Your motivation should be to bring glory to the Father. Are you just trying to escape hell, or are you living your life to bring glory to the Father? If you're living your life to bring glory to the Father, you're not going to see how close to the edge you can walk and how sinful a life you can walk and God still accepts you. That's nonsense. That's not Christianity. If that's your attitude, you better check yourself because I don't think you're really saved. I'll just say that straight up. Because if we have been brought into the Son, my purpose and my joy is going to be in bringing glory to the Father. that's it. Nothing else will matter. Nothing else is important. And in doing that, that's when I will find and experience the fullness of His joy. Amen? What God is doing in the earth today, it's a corporate work. You are the church because you are part of the corporate body. And I'm telling you, get the revelation. Don't let these things that the enemy brings, don't let the opposition of the enemy bring you to a place that it brought the children of Israel. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? Let's rise up. Let's be people of God. Yeah, you can stand up. Go ahead. I like that, man. Yeah. See, I got some people are excited. That's good. That's good. Now we rose up, literally, let's let's rise up as the people of God and let's go in the power of the Spirit and let's do the work God has commissioned us to do. And let's let the cross of Christ do its work and remove every excuse, every hindrance, every barrier that's contrary to it. And let us find our joy in bringing glory to the Father. Amen? Father, we just thank you right now. We ask, Lord. Lord, we confess it's not by might, it's not by power. It is by your spirit, God. And we ask that you would stir us up. Lord, by your spirit, stir us up, God. Open our eyes. Deliver us from the deceit of the enemy. Lord, and open our eyes. Lord, that we find our joy, our fulfillment in bringing glory to the Father. That, Lord, it is not our Responsibility, it's not our duty, it is our privilege. It's our privilege to be joined with the Son in building the house of God and bringing glory to His Father. Lord, make us fruitful branches that the Father in heaven would receive glory, much glory, by our much fruit.